Welcome to Outspoken, where we dive deep into the topics and intersection of technology, money, business, and passion. I'm your host, Shana Cosgrove. We had one young lady who, the very first day, I'll never forget her face. She was like, what am I doing here? And I... I sent her, we were on Zoom, and I like just sent her a little, I I love your glasses. Your glasses are sick. I was wearing glasses too, and I was like, I love your glasses. Where'd you get them? And she was like, oh, thanks. And I was like, we're so happy that you're in the program with us this year. And she's like, this is not my thing. She ended up having like a fantastic summer, learned app development, built an app, presented it at the end, was just totally like, just was into it. Computers are are so integral to the world that we live in now and have changed everything we do. Every industry is affected by computing. And for students to go through 12 years of school without ever having a class that teaches them how a computer works, like how a person can create a program that makes the computer do all of these things that we have it do, how it does all this thinking work for us, that's crazy to not have that, to not have that understanding, to just like be on a computer all day or be on a phone all day, but not have any concept of why it's doing what it's doing or how. So to me, it's like as important as biology, chemistry, and physics. Women and people of color have been systematically blocked out of those opportunities. So that's a huge problem for the tech industry, right? Like the tech industry is putting out subpar products because their computer programmers aren't diverse enough. Today we have Gretchen Legrand, who is the founder and executive director of Code in the Schools. She also happens to be my neighbor. We met randomly at the National Women's Business Council and the National Women's Business Council, they're advisors to the President, Congress, and the Small Business Administration. And they had invited me to speak on behalf of what it was like to be a woman in tech at the Baltimore uh, Convention Center. And Gretchen, were you on the panel? Yeah. You were in the room. I was on the round table too. Uh, so she was uh, on the round table. It was very uh, impressive, very Congress-like. And it turned out she and I lived in the same neighborhood. And then our kids ended up both taking the bus together and not only... Did that happen? But both of our sons are named William and are the same age. <laughs> so we have that in common. And she deals with my fangirlness. Like I'm kind of like, I swoop by and I'm like super fan on Gretchen. And you not only have four kids, but you have a basically a brand new baby, right? She's nine months now. She's like, oh, yeah. And is walking around. <laughs> she walks now? She doesn't independently walk, but she cruises. You know, she's at the cruising stage Aww. where she's like, you know, walking around furniture and then she'll topple over like a tree, bang her head. Now, is the fourth <laughs> easiest? Is it like, because it's no big deal and everybody else takes care of her? What's it like to have four children? Yeah, I always, I think um, I always compare this to like, it's a percentage increase in difficulty, right? So like your first kid, it's like, infinite percent increase in the difficulty. You go from no kids to one kid and you're like, oh my God, this is the hardest thing I've ever done in my whole life. And then you have the second and it's like, okay, it's like a, it's like a 50% increase. And then the third was like, yeah, 
25%. It's still getting harder. It's just less hard every time. So this, well, you you already had a minivan, right? We already had the big minivan. We already, yeah, we had all the baby. Actually, I'd given away all the baby stuff. She was an unplanned for. So (laughs) (laughs) she's beautiful. All your children are, uh, are beautiful. So (laughs) tell us where we are interviewing you from today. I'm sitting in my, well, it's actually not in my office. Our Coden School's office is on the third floor of the Center Theater Building on North Avenue. And we are neighbors with Sparky Pants Game Studio. So oh, I'm actually, cool. yeah, I'm actually um, invading the Sparky Pants space today because they have this nice sound booth that they do streaming, video game streaming events from. And I oh, thought how cool. would be a nice way for me to not have uh, ah, dogs barking in the background. That's awesome. Now, do you guys have a direct feeder program too? Is it called Sparky Pants or just Sparky? Mm -hmm. Oh, it is Sparky Pants. We've had, um, we have had, we definitely had interns go through our program and then go over to Sparky Pants in the past. Yeah, that's a a huge kind of focus of the organization in the next two years is figuring out, you know, a real sustainable pipeline for the students who are coming through our programs to get into internships. So tell us about Code in the School today. When we started seven years ago, it was really just a small group of students that we were working with. And what school? It was actually through the Digital Harbor Foundation. So okay. they, had, they had just opened up in January of 2013. In March of 2013, Mike, my husband, had formed the nonprofit entity, Code in the Schools. I was still working full-time and doing... I was a therapist, and so I was doing therapy. Um, you were? Mm-hmm. Yep. That's a big booming business. You could still have a... Do you still like have a side hustle being a therapist? I should have like maintained my licensure, but I did not. I let it expire. <laughs> you have to, There's all this work you have to do to keep it up. You have to like get all... Oh, you do? Continuing education credits. And I was so busy with Code in the Schools in the first few years that I had, I let that expire. So how did Code I was very good at it, (laughs) to be honest. (laughs) Put on your big girl pants to get back out there. Kind of. I mean, I'm not not always a great listener, but I am like a great problem solver. So when people would tell me their problems, I'd be like, well, here's what you should do. But that's not what you're supposed to do when you're a therapist. You're not supposed to tell people how to solve their problems. I don't understand that. That's why you should be, you should turn and be a life coach because that's what life coaches have to do. And you know who doesn't need a licensure or even a Expensive master's degree. <laughs> like <goodness. laughs> Maybe I'll do that with my expensive master's degree at some point, maybe someday. Tell us about the breadth of the program today. Okay. So yes, we have a, a few different programs. We work directly with Baltimore City Public Schools through a partnership where we send in computer science instructors to pre-K through eighth grade classrooms to provide computer science enrichment during the school day. So that oh, during the school day. So yeah, not that's after during the school program. Mm-hmm. It's actually code in the schools. They are getting code in the schools. And so that through that, I'd have to actually look and see where we are with our schools this year. But that's last year. I think we were in like 12 schools. So it's a, you know, it's a handful. And then we also do after school programs still. So we do that with partner organizations. Like we have a partnership with the Y of Central Maryland and St. Francis Neighborhood Center, Village Learning Place, and a bunch of others um, where we send instructors in after school to teach computer science. Then we have our own programs that we run. That That is sort of, uh, that program is called the Prodigy Program, and it's more advanced computer science concepts. And it starts, we have sort of a middle school bridge, so you can start in middle school and continue with us 
through high school, but it's, it is more focused on, on high school youth and people who are, you know, very interested in careers in computer science. It's very project focused and career focused. Does the Prodigy program have the students come to your building or you're still going to schools for Prodigy? That one that we host that in our, in our location. And who are the primary feeder schools for Prodigy? Is it we, still Baltimore City Public School? Oh, yeah. No, yeah. It's still, it's, it's, in fact, that's one of the only restrictions we have on it. You have to be a Baltimore, you have to be a Baltimore resident. Um, so it's mostly Baltimore City Public School students who come to that. And they come from all over. We've got students from, from schools that are all over the city. In fact, now that we're virtual, <laughs> it's going to be a lot easier, I think, for some of our students who are in farther out places to participate. Yeah, because they all had transportation issues, right? There's like, always you know, a lot of transportation issues, yeah. With that, and then the uh, the last thing we do is um, is teacher training, professional development, and then we do a little bit of, like, consulting for the district and um, different state-level state, state level things around just computer science education in general. You said it's K through 8th program, Code in the Schools? Pre-K through 8th is the in-school computer science enrichment program. And is it one day a week? How many days a week is it? It's up to the individual school. So the principal uh, school leaders will determine kind of how much computer science they want the students to get. And usually we're on like a rotation with other enrichment things. So like music and art and music, art, computer science. So it's up to the individual schools. But we, we generally see students for at least a quarter. Sometimes we see the same class all year. So they're getting, you know, they're getting a lot of computer science content. And for the kids who cut, who, you know, for the schools that we've had long-term partnerships with those students, you know, they've been getting it. They might have a kid who's gotten, you know, had started getting computer science in pre-K and is now in fifth grade getting, you know, additional. And do you provide the teacher as well? So it's like you have a traveling, like the equivalent of like a Spanish teacher who goes around you or you're training someone at the school to be the teacher. No, for that program, that's our teachers. They're employed by us and they go into the schools and use our curriculum and and teach in the school. And do you also have to provide the equipment to the public schools as well? Because I know that especially what came to light during COVID was, you know, not all children at home have connective devices, but then the schools also don't have it compared to some other public schools. Do you also like set up a laboratory at these schools as well as part of the um, program code in the schools? We have done, that's not part of our like sort of contract with city schools, but for, you know, principals who have wanted that, we've been able to kind of figure it out with them. We've helped like raise funds to get Chromebook carts into schools. And we've definitely set up some like ad hoc computer labs with like Raspberry Pis. And so, yeah, we'll, we'll pretty much do, I mean, we'll do anything. We'll do, we'll, <laughs> I shouldn't say that. I get in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> For saying something like that. We'll do anything that will get more computer science into your hands. And then, um, you know, I get in trouble because they're like, well, what are we now to do? So, uh, what is the primary tech platform? Is it Chromebooks? Is it Windows desktops? What does it look like? It really depends on what we're teaching. So, in the in pre K through eighth, ev- almost everything we use is, can, is browser based. So, Chromebooks work great, they're perfect. When we get into some of the high school, some of the upper middle school and high school stuff, you know, some of the software that we want to use, some of the the platforms that we want the kids to be on don't work on Chromebooks. At that, you know, at that level, we're usually using PCs, sometimes Macs. Yeah, if they need more processing power. Yeah, and just, I mean, you know, you can't 
download the Unity game engine on a Chromebook. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like talk, talk, talk tech with us. So K through fourth, are they all doing scratch? What's the program look like? For we use a little K- bit of scratch. We, we primarily in pre-K through eighth grade use code.org as our curriculum. Oh, okay. Super robust curriculum. It's scaffolded for age ranges. We actually just, we just developed uh, our own pre-K computer science program because there's not not a lot of good resources out there for the really little kids, but we we see the really little kids in schools, and so we want to have some we want to have something that was good for them. So, so that so we use ours for pre K. We have code.org in K through eight, and then once we're in high school, there's what we're doing in the Prodigy program is we are we have several tracks, right? So students could be learning Python. They could be doing game development in the Unity game engine. They could be doing introductory web development or advanced web development. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, what platform are they using? Web development, WordPress mostly. I mean, WordPress, they're yeah. you know they're learning HTML, CSS, JavaScript, and then once they're getting into like you know time, you know, with, with where they want to publish, it's I think generally the WordPress platform is what they. What about uh, any Java? So we. Have, we it seems have, like Python's the new hotness. Like Python's what, what? So nice, and it's so easy. You know, it's it's so like readable. Java. We support some curriculum for Java in um, <laughs> in mobile application development in Visual Studio, but that's not one of the ones that we use a lot. I know it's the preferred government, <laughs> preferred government language, but. Well, a lot of people are moving to Python nowadays for because a lot of it is data processing or kind of data flow. I think for a long time, Java really held the domain, but it's slow in some aspects. So for some things, people are moving back to um, C++ where it's you know compiled prior to running, but it gets more complex as you're running to it. But everything's moving to like a web-based, seems like almost everything's moving to a web-based browser. Does your program struggle with people wanting to throw anything STEM related into it where like, oh, you're the robotics group, you're teaching cybersecurity? Like, how do you put a nice box, a polite box and say like, well, robotics is different, cybersecurity is different. How does that work for you guys? And what are some of the challenges you faced with that? I mean, you know, I think that the the box that we put around what we do is largely determined by what students are coming to us wanting to do and what okay. we have the like resources and the capacity to do at the time. So we like, for instance, we never did any IT or networking stuff ever. And I've always sort of been like, oh no, that's not us. We're computers. Like we do computer programming, IT, networking, not in their wheelhouse. However, <laughs> since the pandemic hit, and as you mentioned, like students having access to devices and families having access to devices was such a huge issue that had to be addressed so quickly. We had a team of people who are IT network professionals and started refurbishing computers that we had at the office and giving them away to students and families. And so now that that's like going, we have this, I, I don't think we want to be in like the long-term computer refurbishing business. There are plenty of other people doing that really well. But since, since it's happening, we're like, Hey, we should have a class on this in the fall. Cause we've got like people who are doing it. So we should just like, right. run a class on it and right. maybe students will be interested in it. And similarly with cyber, like we just never, 
you know, we, when we started coding the schools, it was started by my husband and other, like our original board members were all people from the video game industry. So we did a lot of video game development, which is great because students love that. They are, that's always our kind of most popular course. Um, but you know, now that we're seven years in, we're like, you know, cyber is really great career opportunities here in, you know, the Maryland, DC, Virginia region for, for cybersecurity specialists. So maybe that's something that we should think about offering in the future. So Are you looking for more from your career than just a paycheck? At Nyla, we offer that and so much more. Join us for a career where your growth is our priority with generous pay, unbeatable benefits, and a supportive environment that cheers on your every achievement. We're scouting for top-tier data scientists, software engineers ready for something bigger. Ready to be a part of a company that cares about where you're going? We're ready for you. Check us out at nylatechnologysolutions.com or drop us a line at hello at nyla.io. We're kind of, we're, we're flexible. What is your kind of trademark explanation for why students should have a computer science education? Why is this valuable? Why shouldn't they just focus on math and reading? I like to make the case just that this computers are are so integral to the world that we live in now and have changed everything we do. Every industry is affected by computing. And for students to go through 12 years of school without ever having a class that teaches them how a computer works, like how a person can create a program that makes the computer do all of these things that we have it do, how it does all this thinking work for us. That's crazy to not have that, to not have that understanding, to just like be on a computer all day or be on a phone all day, but not have any concept of why it's doing what it's doing or how. So to me, it's like as important as biology, chemistry, and physics, like maybe more important than some of those. <laughs> you know, I and so, and that's the sort of general, like, I don't expect everybody who takes one of our computer science classes in, you know, fifth grade to get so excited about it that they're going to grow up and want to be a computer programmer because it's not for everybody. But at least everybody should know that that's, you know, that what a computer programmer does and how they do it, at least in a general way. And then maybe they will want to do it, you know, maybe. And, and so then the, uh, the second part of it is just that the careers are there, like so many job opportunities in all aspects of computing. And right. There's an extreme shortage. Extreme shortage. And women and people of color have been systematically locked out of those opportunities. So that's a huge problem for the tech industry, right? Like the tech industry is putting out subpar products because their computer programmers aren't diverse enough, in my opinion. (laughs) Yeah, I think there's a lot of data to show that. So do you have a challenge finding students of color and girls for your classes? No. (laughs) (laughs) Are the classes made up of a gender ratio that's normal to any other class? 
Well, I guess they have to, right? For the <laughs> for the K through eight program. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and that's part part of the reason that we expand. So it's we like normalizing we did, it, right? We definitely You're- did see it when we were doing just after school programs. We saw a self selection bias, right? That like more boys were selecting into the video game classes than than girls were, or whatever classes that we were teaching. And so one of the reasons we decided to start the school program was to get more equity. You know, in the exposure that we were getting to students. So yeah, in the in-school programs, we see everybody. There's no self-selection. What about the Prodigy program? The Prodigy program, you know, it kind of like goes in cycles. We it's it's definitely I think if you we looked over the course of I mean we started the Prodigy program in 2014. Actually, that first cohort was more more women, more young women than men, and we had some rock stars come out of that. They're they're all. That 2015 cohort, where they were all seniors that year, and some of them have begun graduating from college. So we've got oh, this one exciting. young woman who left. send them my way. I know, right? <laughs> well, so I, if I could, like Google scooping them up. <laughs> so over the years, I definitely, I think if I and I haven't looked, I should go back and look at what the sort of cumulative data is. But I would say it probably leans more towards male than female. But we're in in like any given program, I'd say we're probably between 40 and 50 percent. What percentage of the Prodigy program goes off to college? Do any of them actually even just get a job directly from high school? They do. Yeah. So that I mentioned that first cohort, that was like, I think, 88 or 90 percent of the students went to college. And it was like, I think it was like 60 or 70 percent. It wasn't all computing. Some of it was like electrical engineering that's all right. Um, I know, right? It was adjacent. You know, it was like good <laughs> enough. Um, so there was a, a lot in that first cohort. The second cohort was a mixed age cohort. So the first year we did it was just seniors, but the second year was mixed age. And those, we I think we looked at like, we looked at both if they were going off to college, if they were going into the industry, and if they or were retained in the program. And I think that year it was somewhere around like 70% that were either like staying with us in the program got a job, or we're going to college for computer science. Are they all tending to go to the same colleges? They're starting to be colleges specifically working with you to recruit and attract your students? I mean, we get a, we definitely... Morgan has a great computer science department. UMBC, obviously, has a really strong computer science department. Um, University of Baltimore has a pretty robust gaming department. So they mm-hmm. um, we, get, we see students go there. University of Maryland College Park... Another big one, Capital Technology University. Yeah, that's a great um, one. Yep. We had some students go off to there. So yeah, Lo- local ones, you know. Do you basically have like alumni of your program staying in touch? And We've talked about now that now that this first cohort is graduating from college, we've, we've been saying like we need to get a... Like I feel like that's an exercise. Make them, make them have an app where it's like the uh, Code in the Schools uh, alumni network. Hey, funny story. One of our students actually built an alumni network app for another nonprofit. <laughs> 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 I, should, I guess I should get him to like build one for us. Too. <laughs> Just white label it. <laughs> Just replace the logo. <laughs> Give him a new Excel file with names and addresses. <laughs> So what is your favorite success story from these last seven years that you love to share or that makes you smile when you're feeling tired? Oh, I mean, there's so many. Are, uh, def- I mean, the Prodigy program students are near and dear because they spend a lot of time with us. You know, we've like, we've 
really gotten to know them well over the years. Um, same thing for like our summer, our summer program CodeWorks is five, it's a youth works jobs program. So students come and they get paid for five weeks to, to learn to code. And we see, we see students who come back every year and do that with us every summer. And we, and then sometimes we get new ones this summer, actually, because it was such a, um, weird summer and nobody knew what was going on. Nobody knew if there was even going to be code work or youth works or how people were going to do it virtually remote work style. We started planning just uh, our, to, to shift everything to virtual, which we did. And because, because there were not as many jobs available because of the pandemic to, to youth, we ended up taking some students. Normally we like recruit students for the program because we want them to be interested in computer science and like want to learn that and not just be like stuck there and be like, I wanted to do art. <laughs> like, not that there's not art in the computer science, there is. But, you know, like I wanted to be painting something with some painting benches. This year we did take some additional youth who we hadn't kind of known before or hadn't been through our application proce process. And we had one young lady who the very first day, I'll never forget her face. She was like, what am I doing here? And I... <laughs> I sent her, we were on Zoom and I like just sent her a little, like, <laughs> I, was like, I love your glasses. Your glasses are so good. I was wearing glasses too. And I was like, I love your glasses. Where'd you get them? And she was like, oh, thanks. And I was like, we're so happy that you're in the program with us this year. And she's like, this is not my thing. I'm not into computers. This is, these, these aren't my people. Like, uh, this is not what I like to do. Anyway, she ended up having like a fantastic summer, learned app development, built an app, presented it at the end, was just totally like, just was into it. And so that, and that to me is the kind of thing that like, when, when you don't have it, when you don't have access to a computer science class in school or like ever, how are you, you're going to think like, I'm not that person. I'm that I'm not, I'm not a nerd. I'm not a geek who sits behind a computer all day and, and like types out code. I'm a social person or I'm a whatever, whatever. But it is, it's for everybody, right? So like, but you never know that unless you have the opportunity. Like, I think that the perception of a software engineer being a white male in a hoodie sitting at a computer and that's all that they do really has a significant negative impact on people totally. uh, selecting out because they don't see themselves as that. Totally. Yeah. No, I would just, I would just wrote a big proposal that went into all the research behind this that, yeah, I mean, that's still when you ask, you know, like, what does a computer programmer look like? It's, it's a Not white, them. white or Asian male glasses, you know, hunched over a computer hoodie, <laughs> right? Lines of zeros and ones going across the screen. <laughs> yeah. Which is actually so rare. Most people don't do embedded programming in case you were listening. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> You alluded your husband started it with the Digital Harbor Foundation, but was this something that was brewing between you two for a while? What was the spark? Was Slow Flame spark? What what happened that, that got it going? Yeah, it was a slow flame for sure. It was a slow flame and then a spark. So. Like from the time you met him, were you two like, we could do so much together? <laughs> or... <laughs> So, I mean, it's not of, enough that we have four kids. Uh, let's start an organization together. No, um, we, so 
<laughs> I was working in the nonprofit sector when, like, before I became a therapist, before I went back to grad school and did did that. I was working in the nonprofit sector and doing. I was like doing workforce development. I, I was teaching and doing stuff like that. He, I, like I said, was has been a computer programmer for a long time. So when we met, I I don't know. I just got to sort of I, I my dad worked as an IT guy. He's an artist, but he worked as an IT guy for a long time. So I knew about like computer hardware. I like built, I built my computer when I went to college in the nineties, you know, and I knew how to fix it. I knew how to take it apart and put it back together. But, but I didn't know anything about like software coding. I didn't, I never had never done anything like that. So and you I grew met, up locally, right? Mm-hmm, yep. I grew up in Baltimore. So you had no programming classes growing up, like not a one. Did you learn visual basic? Did you play where in the world is Carmen San Diego? I did. <laughs> That I did, did you play? Uh, what's the one where they go across the U.S. and you get dysentery and die? Oregon Trail. <laughs> did you play Oregon Trail growing yes. up? Yes, yes, I did. I played all. I played all the games. Now you're younger than me. Did you have your own computer growing up, Shana? We had so many computers in my house growing up and this because i mentioned my dad was and i like he he, there was no money in art right he's like a painter he's a muralist and so he like shifted and did graphic design stuff like that for a while and then when when everything in when the graphic design world went computing he was like all right i gotta ride this wave and so we had so much i mean most of the computers that we had in our house were broken (laughs) but we had a lot so in my room, I had, God, I got to go back and look and see even what the model was, but it was a laptop. It was a portable computer that was like, you can't, Shana can see my hands. You can't see them at home. This, <laughs> this laptop was the size of a, it was bigger than a desktop would be now, right? It was oh, wow. humongous, but it had a handle. <laughs> it folded up. <laughs> so I had that. I used to play, what did I used to play on that one all the time? Jeopardy. I had Jeopardy on that one. So that was in, in high like school. Like visual Jeopardy or was it like um, command line Jeopardy? It was visual Jeopardy. It, okay. It was like 8-bit Jeopardy. Okay. I'm on the 40 train this year. Um, oh, I always I always thought you were like 10 years younger. No. So you're, I mean, you're closer turning, to turning the same. This year. Yeah. All right. Well, well, when you're in your 40s, you don't care what anyone thinks about you. <laughs> I feel like you've been approaching that, but like... Let me tell you, you are over yeah. <laughs> people's opinions. Your husband, did he major in computer science? He did. He majored in computer science and art. Uh, oh. And then went... I'm not going to say you married your father, but let's go. I know, right? I oh, know. <laughs> They're both sweeties. Um, so, so he went right into jobs in the, in the video game industry. He, he actually made an independent game when he was in... Was he still in college? It was right after college. He lived in Brooklyn and he made an independent game and like sold it and made a little bit of money. How did the two of you meet? We met at the, what I, I like to say we met the old fashioned way in a bar. Oh, you did. <laughs> we met at the Brewers Art. Yeah. Oh, well, that is a good place to meet. Brewers and then we had our rehearsal dinner there. When we got you did? Oh, mm-hmm. it's in walking distance from their house. The yeah. <laughs> it's right down the street from my It's like in the middle between Nyla's office and where we live. Gretchen and I live on the other end of essentially the same street <laughs> in the same neighborhood. I live at the bottom of the hill and you live at the top of the hill. <laughs> and Brewer's Art is some of the best beer. That beer is strong. Uh, what's the alcohol ratio? It's like 7.3%. Yeah, they're all like doubles. They're all, it's all Belgian doubles. 
Yeah. It's so, so good. That was one of the first places Brian took me when I came up to visit Baltimore when I was living yeah. in DC. Well, we, and so Mike and I both lived in Mount Vernon. And so uh, we just, you know, like happened to be there. It was, I think it was like a Monday night also, but you know, I was 20 something. Yeah. <laughs> uh, were you still a student? Nope. I was working. I, I had, was, I had, you know, I graduated from college, but I was working in, in a not local nonprofit. And he was working in Timonium at Big Huge Games, taking the light rail up every day. So anyway, yeah, we met. And, and when, when I met him, I was like, okay, you're a computer programmer. Cool. Like, teach me some code. So he did. And we, like, you know, made some funny little games together. I made a Really? Game. Like your, uh-huh. your dates were, like, hanging out and making games? <laughs> yeah. No shame. I'm no shame. I'm <laughs> Well, I'm sure it's more fun when it's a game versus like, I don't know, hello world, right? right. Like some, um, so, he, so he taught me a little bit of, a little bit of coding, but I was like, I'm going to help people individually. I'm yeah. going to become a therapist and do therapy. So, so where does the spark come? So you guys have this slow burn. Yeah. And then- so we've been, we had been talking about it. We were like, Oh, it would be cool to like start a nonprofit one day that taught like, and so what causes you guys to pull the trigger and when did you become full time for you? So in 2013, Mike had been working. I mean, there's like a whole, you could do a whole another podcast on the like video game industry and people have done. So I won't do it here. I'll save save the, the trauma for another time. But he had gone from big, huge games and was working at Zynga, which had an East Coast office at the time. He was working there and Zynga decided to close that office. And so at the time we were like, okay, well, do we like move to... San Francisco and you can work at Singa HQ or do we stay in Baltimore and do something else? And I think when we started looking at apartments in San Francisco, we were like, yeah, yeah, we're not moving there. So that's not happening. We had, you know, we had a, we had two, two children at that point. Oh, yeah. um, okay. But, right. So this is 2013. And so he was like, well, I'm going to just um, take my severance and start a nonprofit. And I was like, okay, I support you. You should do <laughs> Mike was the one who taught me the term fun employment. So I was like, do it. <laughs> That's cool. Fun employment. Um, and so he did it. And then he got hooked up with Digital Harbor Foundation just through like, I don't know, he just like, I guess he just started going to like tech events in Baltimore and just started like meeting people and talking. So we got hooked up with them and they were basically like, yeah, you can run a class here. We just opened up. We've got all the space and students who are coming after school. So sure. Video, you know, send us a syllabus. So then as soon as there was like a deliverable attached to it, he came back and was like, can you help me write the syllabus? <laughs> so how long was it a, a side job for you? And when did you switch and make it full time? I did it for probably about six months before it became a full time thing. So not very long, really. I mean, it was we, it still his full time thing when it was your full time thing? Oh, he because he went back to a different game studio at some point. Okay. So he started, he essentially kicked it off and then was like, I'm going back to full time. And you're like, all right, I'm out of being a therapist and I'm going to do this. Yeah. So he passed the ball. Somebody's got to pay the bills around here. And the wage disparity disparity between computer programmers and therapists is uh, vast. So yeah, so I said, I was like, let me, you know, I'll just, I'll, I can do this. Cause at that point we had gotten some funding, some like seed funding from a local foundation. 
And I was like, okay, we'll just like hire some instructors. Um, you know, we've got this, this one program that we wrote already, this one, you know, cur- little curriculum. And so we can do that. And then, but at the time in 2013, there was just, there was a lot of movement happening around computer science education. And so, I mean, and there really had been for a while, but again, like slow burn in 2013, there just started to be kind of a lot of national attention around it. And so we like just, you know, rode the kind of rode the wave. We were like, yeah, this, that's what we do. Computer science education. You, you, your kids should learn to code. Were you scared to quit your full-time job and run the nonprofit? Do you get scared? You seem very fearless. It's so funny what people's perceptions are, right? Versus. Well, I don't, I will say I am a, I I think I'm a, I am a risk taker. (laughs) Like, sure. What's the worst that could happen? No, I don't think I was. I think I was, I think I was excited about the potential. And were you comfortable working and asking for money? I think a lot of, um, especially engineers, you know, sort of a sales job or like asking for money or asking people for money is an uncomfortable situation. Did you already have experience? Because that's a that's a core part of not only is there the execution, right, but a huge part of a nonprofit is ensuring that the money is rolling in. Yeah, Um, I think I mean, obviously, I had a ton to learn, but I think at least having been in the nonprofit sector, even though I was never in a development or fundraising role, at least gave me, I knew, you know, I knew going in that if what we were doing was good, like if it was a good program, if students enjoyed it and if they were engaged in it and, and said to us afterwards that like, yeah, I might, I might be a computer programmer when I grow up, you know, that we could take that to funders and say like, this is worth investing in. This is a good, it's, you know, this is the kind of thing you want. What's the biggest way that you guys raise your money? So our budget these days is about we're about 50% earned revenue through contract of various things and then 50% charitable donations. So grants, individual donors, corporate donors. But do you have like a big gala at the end of the year where you are relying on 20% of your revenue to come through with like... We don't do galas. (laughs) (laughs) Golf tournaments or marathons. We don't do them. Okay. So it's all like shaking trees year-round. Relationship building is probably the proper term. Yeah. Well, I mean, Baltimore has a, a very kind of tight-knit philanthropy community. And so that we were super fortunate early on that, that a funder found us. One, uh, there was one funder that found us. And then they really kind of introduced us to other people and got us in the door. And we've just been very lucky with all that. So what is the future of Code in the Schools look like? What are some of the next steps or your next vision? We just went through a big strategic planning process last year or in 2019, it wrapped up. And so we've been, we've really been kind of executing on the plan. Obviously, COVID is a, you know, unforeseen part of that <laughs> we're, we're adapting to. Probably in the next few years, we are probably going to try to phase out our in-school programs. And the reason for that is mostly that city schools is doing a fantastic job of, of getting computer science into the classrooms on their own. Oh, nice. Um, yeah. They're like, they're like, we don't need outside help. But got this. Yeah. I mean, we, I, I, we love working with them. They're, they've been an amazing part and they're amazing people over at the district who are, who 
are, feel very passionately about computer science and making sure that students have access to it. And so they worked really diligently to get a uh, computer science curriculum approved by the board. So there's a curriculum there. So any technology teacher, any instructional technology teacher or um, you know, library media specialist has that curriculum that they can go to to teach. So, you know, everything's kind of school by school. So you can't, you can't like mandate that everybody teaches it. Although we did work on some legislation a couple of years ago at the state level. So there is a mandate at the state level that every high school in Maryland at least has to offer a computer science course. And I oh, think that awesome. takes effect next year or the year after. That's awesome. Um, so that's been happening. And, you know, because of that, there's been a huge demand for teacher training. So we've been doing a lot more teacher training, right? Like we'd much rather have the teacher in the classroom delivering the computer science content and, and, and integrating that into the other things that students are learning even than for us to have to sort of be this, the stock app and, and sending people in. So that program will phase out over the next few years. I mean, we're not going to like yank people out, you know, we still want to sure. provide schools with what they need. So. Well, it allows you to also go to the schools that are not providing it yet. Exactly. Right? It allows you to take those resources to the schools that are still behind and haven't gotten there yet. And, and definitely what we've seen is that like, you know, after a few years of being there, there's often like, there's enough capacity at the school itself that they're, you know, teachers have seen it being taught and they're like, Oh, I can teach that. That's not that scary. Yeah. I think, I think that's a, so interesting and such a great story because getting something started, socialized and becoming a norm is really the hardest part about things, right? So you're helping change a culture so significantly that you're almost not even needed. So you're the starter, right? Yeah. Like you're the one who's coming in and introducing these concepts to the school, to the community, to the point where it, it becomes so normal that they're like, yeah, we got this. Yeah. And we, I mean, that really that's what we've seen. Like if, when we look at the, uh, we have a data dashboard that we use to look at what schools are teaching this particular computer science curriculum through code.org. It's so, so many students are getting computer science in the district now. It's, it's incredible. Like the change over the past seven years has been, has been crazy. So, so eventually, so right, exactly. Eventually we're, we won't be needed. We'll, we'll be here for whatever people want, but like we probably won't be needed to send people into school. So that'll go away and we'll focus more on the teacher training on professional development and on our, our programs. So prodigy program, really the more like work-based learning programs where we're trying, where we really are wanting to take kids who want to pursue computer science or maybe networking in IT or maybe cyber, you know, as a career pathway and making sure that they, you know, they're not, not only are they getting the skills because they, I mean, the skills, as you know, like a, a person who is, loves computer programming, who loves coding, like they learn to teach themselves what they need to know to move into whatever they want to do or have to do or like whatever story they love. But, you know, I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of opportunity for our local technology industry to to realize the huge talent pool that they have right here and to get better She's connected. talking to you, my listeners, <laughs> in case you're... <laughs> uh, that one was... Huge uh... talent pool right here. Under... I know you're so... They're so uh, you're so successful. I tried to hire... You still owe me a name of an app developer. I was like, sorry, she's busy. I've got it. <laughs> I had to get on uh, Upwork and see yeah, who I could. No. <laughs> I 
I haven't hired someone from there yet. I've still given you a chance to. All right. All right. Let me see what I can do to uh, use my network. So I've heard of Girls Who Code and um, Black Girls Code. What other programs are kind of similar and how do you relate to them or view them? So, I mean, Black Girls Code, Code.org, Girls Who Code. There's, I mean, there's a ton. A, a lot of those are big national organizations and they, like what we, we would not be able to do what we do without them, right? Like we don't have the capacity to develop the amazing like curricula and programs and you know, all this and, and gosh, like the media content, the con like just the content that they're putting out is amazing. And we use that. We're like, thank you for this amazing video that explains exactly why computer science is so important. We will show it to everyone. <laughs> but so, you know, I think where we, what, where we are is we're, we, we care about Baltimore and we care about the students in Baltimore who, you know, who, like I said, are hugely talented and and just need access to opportunities to right. develop their talents and and meet people who will hire them. So we, yeah, we work with all those big national organizations. We're we're big fans. That's um, awesome. But, you know, nobody knows now, Baltimore like we do. <laughs> now, did you have a challenge being comfortable as a leader? I know you said you didn't really scare you to jump from having a full time job uh, to running the nonprofit kind of before your financial base was there, but what has your evolution as a leader been? I mean, oh gosh, I, you know, I have a lot to learn. I have had a lot, I've learned a lot and I still have a lot to learn. I think I do, like I mentioned, I really like to solve problems. So that's, um, that, that's my wheelhouse. Like give me a problem. Yeah. <laughs> I'm in it. I'll figure out a way to make, make it work. Now um, you've gar you've garnered a bit of uh, fame for your work as well. <laughs> uh, well, you were just one of Baltimore's uh, top forty under forty, correct? Oh, yeah, I just snuck in there. <laughs> <laughs> but just how under the wire? <laughs> how do you? Um, I owe that to my board president and and our lovely COO who nominated me. So tell me, how do you deal with like the kind of being a visible, recognized figure? Is that comfortable to you? Is it weird? I mean, I, I don't get like recognized on the streets. <laughs> All right. So it's just me who's like that. I'm always like, William, do you know what Gretchen did? We have a lot of talks about you at the house. Aww. I was like, I was like, look, she's amazing. You would only hope to grow up like that. So um, every day for my <laughs> morning. <laughs> well, I think, I don't know if you, I don't know if I said it to you, but I think when you think about success, it's not money or like number of houses or cars. It's about the lives that you've impacted, right? So even at approaching 40, you have impacted, really significantly impacted so many lives and perhaps will be changing generational wealth too by allowing people to see computer science, allowing them to see themselves in computer science, because it is really one of the, a very significant, significantly paying job. Not only does it have a long, long future ahead of it and continue to, um, but they need those creative technical people. And so you're changing those students' lives and allowing them to, to see that, see themselves in it, and then 
potentially change many more behind it as that also becomes part of the culture and the norm and they see themselves in that as well. So I think, well, and, um, I, and two, I hope that what, like, I hope that some of the change, some of the impact that we make happens on the other end, right? Like on the tech technology industry side of things who, Oh, well, yeah. You know, like that's <laughs> my God. I mean, that's, that's actually a huge reason I'm doing this podcast because I actually feel like my biggest challenge professionally was that no one assumed I was technical. It was really like this look at me and I did not look like what they thought someone who was a computer science major looked like. Also that I could speak. So I think there's this misperception of there's the stereotype is so perverse that people self-select out and also there is this unbelievable focus on a very narrow path and not assuming that you actually need additional skills such as creativity or visualization or the ability like to, being able to communicate with yeah the ability to being. speak and collaborate or mm-hmm. reading comprehension which by the way is like critical for actually like understanding how to take other people's code and get it to work right, right. so i think from my experience, I felt like I was always being pushed out because I didn't fit people's perceptions and uh, I was too, I liked solving the problems too much to, to leave and I liked, I always liked the code aspect of it. What would you say to someone who really wants to start a nonprofit? I knew nothing when, like, I, I had no idea what we were getting ourselves into. We definitely, you know, we did not plan for Code in the Schools to become a big, like, nonprofit serving thousands of youth every year. We really just did it as, like, a way to do an after-school club. I I don't know. I mean, like, if I had to go back and tell myself something, I might be like, maybe don't. <laughs> <laughs> you seem, like, too like stubborn. Could- <laughs> like, if someone actually told you no, would you actually listen to them, Gretchen? <laughs> I don't even believe, like, you could literally come from the future and tell yourself no. I don't know. And you'd be like, I don't listen. I don't believe you, old lady. Like, I'd go back and I'd be like, this, the past two weeks, you worked two straight weeks of 60 hour, hour weeks. What, <laughs> what are you thinking? Don't do this. Spend with the newborn with and two dogs. <laughs> so no, I mean, I think, you know, there's a, there are a lot of nonprofits out there already doing great work. I, there definitely, I think was a gap when we started in, in computer science and here locally. Um, but you know, I think I, I'd say like, go get, get some experience, like working at a nonprofit and understanding what it's, what it's like. Cause it's so different from a for-profit culture and there's just, there's a lot of considerations. So I, yeah, I would say, I would say like, don't go out and start a nonprofit right away necessarily. Think about what you, <laughs> what you want to do and work with some other nonprofits and see if there's synergy first or, you know, launching into it. Cause it's just a ton of, it's a ton of work. So if and, I'm in high school, like, what would you say? And I'm thinking about, I want to study computer science. What would you say to do? Outside of being part of your prodigy program, well, no, but I think any any early any early experiences you can get with like working on a project with like doing it on on your own or with another person and getting that visibility, like getting it out there. So, like, go out, getting on GitHub and like contributing to some open source projects um, so that you have you know a code 
so that you have code to point to when people are asking or just developing some projects on your own. So you can be like, hey, I, you know, published this little calculator app to the app store. You know, like it doesn't mm-hmm. have to be fancy, but like just I think for people seeing that like you can that you can do that, like you could like take a, a little project from start to finish and get it into the app store. That's you know, that's not a small thing. Did you have a dream job when you were a child? For most of my childhood, I was very involved in theater. And so I desperately wanted to be on on the stage. You did? Broadway. Broadway. Tell me more about it. Like musical theater. I did all kinds of stuff. I did musical theater. I did some puppeteering. Uh-huh. <laughs> Have you been for the Center for Puppeteering in like Atlanta? It's really no, good. Yeah. It's uh it's almost worth the trip, but they have like it's I guess where Jim Jim Henson grew up. Okay. So they have an amazing museum of all the Jim Henson puppets and they put on shows. It's really good. So the the it, the the place that I was involved in growing up was a nonprofit and very kind of like not exactly political, but like it was kind of like social justice issues and some politics. Oh, it was in Baltimore. And, what was it called? It was called Open. It's still around. Open Space Arts Organization. Okay, it was, it was in Ricerstown, and we and so all the puppeteering we did was a a lot like Bread and Puppet Theater in Vermont. I don't know if you've ever heard of them, but it's very like it's it's not like Muppets. It's like really somber. Wow. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Important like questions. <laughs> what was your major song that you would use for auditions? I I love Into the Woods, so I would sing um, Into the. I definitely remember using uh, the witch's song and in Into the Woods for an audition. But yeah, I okay. did that from the time I was like ten to seventeen or eighteen. And then you I didn't worked, do it I in college. Them. I did do some theater in college when I, but my college didn't have a big theater. I mean, they had a theater group, and I did I did do some plays with them. But after my freshman year, I was like kind of turned turned off by it. I think I, I think what I really liked about the place, the nonprofit where I was doing the stuff was the community and kind of what we were doing and what we were building together. And then when I got to college, it was just like a bunch of assholes. <laughs> and I was like, this is dumb. I don't actually don't, did you, don't really like theater. <laughs> did you want to do it like for a living? So did you go off to college to do it for a living? No, I had thought about going to college for I was looking at colleges with theater departments, but I knew I didn't want to major in theater because I thought that would be a bad, not marketable skill to have majored in. So instead I majored okay. in philosophy, which was way better. Was that, <laughs> <laughs> were you influenced by your father's struggles with being uh, an artist? Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Although, I mean, like, like I said, it's not like philosophy was a better choice, but... That's what I Have you seen Avenue Q? Speaking of puppets, have you ever seen Avenue Q? I've never seen it. Oh my God, you have to see it. And then, oh, it's very fun. It's very adult. It's adult uh, puppet musical. What's your favorite musical then? Like of all time or currently? Sure. Both, whatever. (laughs) Let's see. I, well, I think Into the Woods actually might be one of my favorite musicals of all time. I do really love it. Um, is there anything looking back on your career you wish you did differently? Would not have gone to grad school for for psychology. Yeah. <laughs> I would have gone. I should have gone for like business. Business would have been a better choice. 
maybe you like like uh like Dana where you might be influenced on uh taking kind of the combo business and helping others. Yeah, oh, for sure. Yeah. I definitely have always wanted to help other people. But you know, now looking back, I realized that like there were better ways for me personally to help people than doing therapy with them. I am a big reader, so tell me about your favorite book. Oh my gosh. Well, we were just talking about this actually with my I was just talking about this with my husband. One of my favorite books of all time, I've read it over and over and over again, is The Princess Bride. Also an amazing movie, obviously. And I just watched the uh, the live table read that they did with the most of the original cast, which was awesome. But oh, um, really? Yeah. Yeah. It, it was you had to like donate to Democrats of Wisconsin to get the link to watch it. Um, but it was, it was, it, and, and, and it was hilariously like representative of our current state of the world because they were all doing it like via Zoom. <laughs> so like some people's connection wasn't that great and there, you know, you couldn't hear them that well. And that, so it was, it was like some people were on mute when they were talking. That so was funny. Uh, but the book is really good. The book is hilarious and just, an excellent book. So I love that book. Is and, the book different from the movie? Yes. I mean, How? The, the whole story, the story is pretty much the same, but the book just goes into like crazy detail about sort of things that are happening in the story in a, in a hilarious and interesting way. I've never read the book. So good. And it's I'm an glad. easy read. It's like a quick, easy read. Is there a book professionally or like personally that has affected you? Professionally or personally? Like a self-help book kind of thing? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, like, I recommend E-Myth to everybody. E-Myth? Oh, I don't know. I've never heard of that. It's, um, it's a great book about how to grow a business. I think the two major points from it are you should always grow business in a very clear fashion with clear processes defined and like where you have the roles defined and the processes defined so that anyone could pick it up and do it where it's not personality dependent. Mm -hmm. Like this is what this job entails. It's not like without Mary, we don't know what the hell's going on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing is, I don't know if he makes this, he makes this point really late in the book, but you have to build a business with a mind to sell it or the ability to pass it on because, and then to think about what do you want for your life and backtracking of like, will this business get you to what you want with your life as well? Like doing a thought exercise of what do I really want with my life and will this get me there? Mm, um, so I like it because I think solo for me entrepreneurship <laughs> is very hard. <laughs> it's not too late. You're so young. <laughs> I know you're approaching 40, but <laughs> you have to think my business didn't really get off the ground till I was, I didn't even really start it till I was 36, 37. Then it took like two more years. So I've always read these stories of like famous people who their business didn't really get going. Uh, like Vera Wang didn't oh, start. Oh, yeah. Vera Wang. Uh, Julia Child was like, mm-hmm. first she was in the CIA. And then she was a bored housewife who like met up with some French ladies and helped <laughs> translate their book to uh, the U.S. So you really don't know what your next act True. entails. This could just be like a footnote. 
I've got like 25 years left till I can retire. So there's got to be lots of, lots of things I'm going to do. Not even retire. I mean, like think about how creative and what, what different things are up your sleeve. So what, what do you love about Baltimore? There are so many great things about Baltimore. I mean, this is my hometown. I grew up here and my family's lived here for a long time. Yeah. Baltimore is like super unpretentious about it and like not, it's not about itself in the way that like DC is. And so people here, I think there's like a friendliness and a camaraderie that people have here that they don't have in other places. But that's one of the things I really like about it. Plus the food and the art and the monuments. Yeah. (laughs) It's a beautiful, it's a, it's a beautiful place. It is. Yeah. I love it. We've been walking around. We've been, my, my four-year-old and my baby and I have been walking the dogs in the morning together and it's been our little like thing that we do with him, with the four-year-old that we go and find fountains on our walk because there's so many fountains That's and cool. like weird statues places. And so we just go find like, find the little cool things. So we've seen a lot of fountains. If you ever need a, a walking tour map of the fountains of Baltimore, I'll hook you up. I would appreciate that. <laughs> what should I have asked you that I didn't ask? If people want to get involved in the, the computer science education work that we're doing, they can visit our website. You can make donations there. You can get involved. You can host an intern. You can uh, be on our industry advisory board. What's next for Code in the Schools? We're starting some more, a lot more, uh, like sort of workforce development programs, offerings. We're expanding the types of classes that we offer, expanding into cybersecurity and some IT networking stuff. And in maybe by next year, we will be in a new office space across the street from our old office space that will um, give us some, some more classroom space. So when we're all back in person, we'll actually have lots of room to host classes for the teachers that we train and the students who we see. Are you going to franchise this? Are there going to be <laughs> code in the schools and other cities? I'm pretty focused on Baltimore. I think like there's a ton of work to do here. Um, so we already do kind of work statewide with our teacher professional development. So I actually do work with Frederick County Public Schools quite closely around teacher professional development. Yeah, maybe someday. <laughs> we got to figure out, we got to figure out Baltimore first. And what do you have planned for this weekend? I think uh, we're going to make some tacos tonight. Oh, it's Taco Friday. Taco Friday. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for being part of this podcast and for sharing your story, which is really amazing what you and your husband have put together and really changing people's lives and letting them think in a different way and see themselves in a different way, even if it isn't their career path for life. I think it's amazing to really start and change the culture and make this part of the basic conversation. So thank you, Gretchen. I remain a super fan. (laughs) Thank you for having me. Nothing you can do will change my mind. (laughs) And don't forget, everyone can donate to codeintheschools.org. Is that your website? Mm -hmm. Codeintheschools.org. That's it. All right. Well, thank you again, Gretchen. Have a great evening. Thanks, Shana. Good to see you. Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast. Please be sure to share it with friends and family. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can find us on 
Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn under the Outspoken Podcast. Thanks again and chin up, heads up, eyes forward.